The big question is, how does someone with MS actually improve their mobility, strength, energy, independence, the list goes on. My name is Dr. Gretchen Hawley, physical therapist and multiple sclerosis specialist. Welcome to the Missing Link Podcast. Tune in as I share the top strategies and exercises to help you gain control over your life with MS using research-driven insights and advice from top industry experts. Whether you're newly diagnosed or have had MS for over 30 years, whether you have relapsing MS or progressive MS, this podcast is for you. You're sure to feel empowered and inspired after each episode. Ready? Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I have a special guest with me, Dr. Shelby Harris. She is a clinical psychologist and sleep specialist in New York. She is board certified in behavioral sleep medicine and treats a wide variety of sleep, anxiety, and depression issues using evidence-based non-medication treatment. She created a self-help book, The Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia in 2019, as a way to help people who are unable to see her in her clinic. Dr. Harris has been an invited columnist for New York Times and is frequently quoted in the media, including the New Yorker and Washington Post. She has appeared on the Today Show, Good Morning America, and CBS Mornings. On today's episode, Dr. Harris talks to us about how to treat insomnia without medication, where to find a qualified sleep specialist near you, and her number one tip that you can start doing today to improve your sleep quality. Dr. Shelby Harris, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Of course. So before we get into the nitty gritty of sleep and how we can get better at it and all that good stuff, I would love to ask you a question from my interview deck <laughs> to help our audience get to know you a bit better. Is yeah. that okay with you? Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Okay. Your question is, which activities make you lose track of time? Oh, um, that's an easy one. It's two things, or maybe three things. One is I'm an upright bassist by training. So I was a classical music major and bassist in college. So when I play the bass, I lose just any track of time. <laughs> Baking is another big one, like doing bread or brioche and things like that. And then running, I sometimes lose track of time too. So those oh, three activities. Those are great answers. Have you ever made focaccia bread? I have, not in a long time, but yeah. It's so I haven't. I, I love baking as well. I'm not really in the bread world though, but focaccia is something I've always wanted to make. Oh, it's so good. You should definitely make it. It's not that hard either. It's just, it, you put a lot of dimples in it with your fingers. So <laughs> I'll add it to my list. For sure. Awesome. Very cool. Thanks for answering that. So let's just dive right in. Um, for our listeners who might not know who you are, can you kind of explain what you do and how you work with people to help with sleep. Okay. So I am by training, I'm a clinical psychologist. I also have a specialty in behavioral sleep medicine. So what that means is I work using evidence-based methods to help people improve their sleep without the use of medication. I'm currently in private practice in Westchester, just outside of New York city. So I see people over zoom and in person all the time. But for a long time, I was the director of the behavioral sleep medicine program at Montefiore medical center. It's the big hospital in New York city at their sleep lab. So what we did there was when patients came in to the sleep lab, 
They were sometimes being evaluated for sleep apnea or insomnia or sleepwalking disorders or narcolepsy. And whenever there were, say, insomnia patients, we always tried to have them come to me as opposed to the MDs first, because for a few short-term treatment sessions, we tried to improve people's sleep without having to use medications a lot of the time. So I work a lot with babies through older adults, and now I do most of it in private practice. Nice. That's awesome. And why? I've, I've noticed just from following you that you tend to focus mostly on women. Is there a reason for that? So... I, for a number of years, was just starting to notice, and this was before, like, now I think over the past two, three years, there's been this, like, huge boom in, like, perimenopause and menopause talk and pregnancy and postnatal sleep, or just in general. And I noticed for a long time that a lot of my patients were women, and there wasn't a lot of research being done on it, but there started to be some. And then I actually wrote a book in 2019, The Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia. And it was just the sort of thing where women would have sleep problems often due to perimenopause or hormonal things or after having a baby, but people didn't talk about it that much. It was just push through, deal with it. It's kind of what happens. You'll be okay. So I wanted to really get women thinking about their sleep, not just suffering in silence. I love that. It's so important. And I think one reason it's so important is because when you do suffer in silence, you also feel like you're the only one. And so it's nice having this conversation. So I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking, oh, it's not just me. There are other people who deal with this and people who can help. Yeah. I had put a poll up on my Instagram account maybe a week or two ago, just asking like, if you're going through perimenopause, do you think a group would be helpful to talk about sleep issues and other things. And like, it was overwhelming. Yes. Because people just aren't doing that stuff and people want to relate to other people. Yes, absolutely. So I'm a physical therapist Mm -hmm. specializing to help people with MS. And so a lot of the clients that I work with have MS. Mm -hmm. Do you find that there are differences in what is causing sleep issues when someone does have a disease versus general sleep issues? What are your thoughts on that? It varies. It really varies on the disorder, the disease, the psychiatric disorder, any life stressors. Sometimes it could be certain people might have more, like for example, someone who might might have anxiety, they might have more of a rumination, trouble falling asleep. Other people with more medical issues, pain issues, whatever that might be, they're waking up more a lot in the middle of the night or having very early morning awakenings. It varies based on the person because also, you know, not one illness doesn't always like occur in a bubble. Sometimes there are other things that are related with it. But what we do find in the sleep field is especially for things like insomnia, which is my area of specialty, there can be things that kick it off. But honestly, the treatment in many cases is the same. It's behavior, cognitive behavior therapy or medication. We're really treating the things that people are doing that are maintaining the sleep problem and not necessarily the things that initially kicked it off, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a lot of overlap too. It's not like if you have MS, that's the only thing you have. You can also have anxiety and hip pain and all these other things. When do you think someone should seek out help versus just feel like, well, I just have trouble sleeping. I'm just going to try to deal with that on my own. Okay. So it depends upon the, the sleep issue, right? Let's just talk about insomnia first. So if you're having trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, you wake up too early and it's happening at least three times a week for at least a month, that's a short-term insomnia. You might want to start thinking something's going on. I might want to talk to someone. If it's been going on for at least three months, which honestly, in most of the cases that I get are people who've had it for years and never sought treatment. <laughs> if it's going on for at least three months, definitely look for treating it because usually it doesn't just get better on its own and you really want to do something about it. Then there's other things like if you just wake up every day and you're sleeping at night, but you're waking up 
feeling unrefreshed or you do have some insomnia, but you just wake up unrefreshed or you're excessively sleepy and groggy during the day, then you really want to talk to your doctor, even if it's been going on for three, four weeks, because that should be treated. Awesome. Those are some great guidelines. So one thing that I really love, and I know about you just from, again, following you, is that you don't use medications. I feel like it's really easy for doctors to just initially go to here, try this med and we'll see how it works. Can you share with us how that works? Is it just generic tips like get a better sleep hygiene Mm -hmm. routine or is it something beyond that? Yeah, so the area that I specialize in is cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. So a lot of people think it's just sleep hygiene. And sleep hygiene is the sort of thing that's like the limit the caffeine before bed, limit alcohol within three hours, like all that sort of stuff. And that's super important, but it's not going to necessarily solve a chronic insomnia that's been going on for ages. So sleep hygiene, I think of as more for people who have that occasional, like less than three nights a week for months on end. That's where it really helps. Like you think about that. CBT for insomnia has the sleep hygiene as a basis because good luck sleeping if you're drinking a two liter bottle of soda before bed. But then on top of that, we tailor If you're only sleeping, say, five hours a night, but you're in bed nine hours, we actually give you much more restricted bedtime, wake time windows. It goes against common sense. We have people spend less time in bed to try and fall asleep and deepen the sleep that they get. So we come up with a plan for that. We come up with plans of what to do if you can't sleep at night. How do you get out of bed? Do you sit in your bed? Do you sit up? What do you do with light exposure at night? Then we also think about the C part, the cognitive part. So it's, what are you worrying about? How do you deal with the worries? What do you do if you have a busy brain? Should we add in some meditation, some mindfulness? How do we get your brain to just decompress before bed and in the middle of the night to not go there? And then sometimes we'll add in with some patients, relaxation exercises, deep breathing, that sort of stuff, light exposure based on the person. And that's really the CBT program. So it's it's very short term. It's some patients I see in two sessions are doing better, but it's usually between two and 12 sessions. I don't even see patients weekly. I see them every few weeks and they track their sleep on a diary. And then we go from there and change their sleep intervals that we give them for their bedtime and wake time over time. Gotcha. Wow. So yeah, my next question is how long does it take? So would you review all of that in one or two sessions? It varies. I don't usually do the cognitive stuff as much. I'll kind of pepper it in a little bit there, but I'll give them a sleep-wake window. I'll tell them what to do if they aren't awake in the middle of the night. Usually I give some of the stuff at the beginning because it's a pretty big intake, but then a lot of the other sessions are adding in other things if we need to or problem solving, right? Like I say to someone, you got to stay up until midnight now and they're dozing on the couch and they can't get until midnight, get up until midnight. So how do we get them to stay awake in a weird way to actually then sleep better at night? So it's a lot of problem solving too as sessions go on. Nice. That's my favorite part about being a PT is the problem solving and brainstorming and each person is different. Everyone's different. CBT is very manualized in idea, but getting people to do what they need to be doing, it's a lot of problem solving. And that's the creativity is what I really love about it. Yeah. And it sounds challenging too, because a lot of it sounds like you need to break bad habits and it's not just here, try this new thing, but it's also try this new thing and stop following this thing that you've been doing. Exactly. I usually say to people, it's the anti-common sense treatment because it's all the common sense stuff that we do that gets us in trouble. So I'm not sleeping well after a few weeks. I might as well go to bed early, try to catch it when I can. I'll sleep in in the morning if I can. I'll start taking some extra coffee during the day. I'll nap. I'll drink some alcohol. start pills. Those are all the things that make total sense, but they're actually (laughs) what's maintaining the problem. And it's so strong that even if I have a family member who has trouble sleeping, I'll say to them, oh, you look tired. Go take a nap. Go to bed early. And even I know that that's not what they should be doing. The common sense is strong. 
Right. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I experienced something very similar. I think I was still in physical therapy school. It was towards the end and I was getting a lot of sleep. I'm one of those people that I've always been able to sleep as late as I want and go to bed whenever. But in this specific phase, I was getting at least 10 hours of sleep, if not more consistently. And I was feeling exhausted the whole day. And in my mind, I was thinking, well, what the heck? I'm getting so much sleep. Why am I still so tired? And I literally had to make myself go to bed later and wake up earlier just to try something new. Yeah. And was it how I hope it was helpful. It was helpful, but it's, it's backwards. Like I would never have assumed that. Nope. It's because we're so focused in our society and you must get eight hours, eight hours, eight hours. And that's great. But for people who have sleep problems, that's the worst thing ever. Cause all it does is make you then get hyper-focused on eight hours and then you sleep less. So it's meeting your body where it is and then trying to see if you can extend your sleep to a little bit more over time. Awesome. And where can someone find a cognitive behavioral therapist who works with insomnia? Because that sounds like a pretty specific niche. It is. And there are a lot of people out there who might say that they do it because they read like a book or something. So I encourage if you're looking for someone specifically, the best places to look are the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine, their website. They have a listing of people who are certified providers. So you can go to, uh, I forget their website, sbsm.org maybe, Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine. You can also go to the University of Pennsylvania. They, they have a Penn Insomnia group there. I forget the specific name of it, but if you look up Penn Insomnia Treatment Providers, that's a listing of people who've taken the specific training to do CBT for insomnia. The best, if you're really looking for the gold standard, is to find someone who's got a, a DBSM. They basically have a certification in insomnia treatment and, and sleep treatment in general without meds. The other places to go, you don't always have to work with someone too, right? So, you know, I wrote my book, for example, because you can't always get someone or sometimes money is an issue, whatever it might be, or insurance. So like my book, The Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia, there's so many wonderful ones out there. My friend Colleen Carney and Rachel Mamber, they have Quiet Your Mind and Get to Sleep. That's another excellent workbook. And then there's apps. So you want to make sure you find a really good app. So the CBTI Coach is one that some of my colleagues have made that's fantastic. There's also Sleepio. You have to get that usually through a company if you work for one. But CBTI Coach and Sleepio are also wonderful resources. So there's all these different options to try. I usually encourage people, though, if you're on medications or you have a lot of complicated medical history or usually people are on sleep aids and things like that, it's best to work with someone specifically who can really tailor it given your specific situation. Yeah, maybe work with someone first, get that brainstorming done, figure out what will work for you, and then maybe one of the apps or follow it up with a book. And sometimes, too, people, like if you just have a newer insomnia, those apps and books are great. If it's been going on just a few months or a year, by all means, they're fantastic. And even for people who've had it longer term. And sometimes people have to want to see me, but I have a wait list for some reason. And I'll say, you know what, go try my book, try an app first. And sometimes that helps by the time that they've even gotten to the appointment with me, which is great. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. And when it comes to cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, is that something that people should kind of jump to right away? Or how long would you wait? And we kind of touched a little bit on this earlier, but what's that time frame look like? So if you start to notice that you're having sleep problems, I always encourage people, you know, like first, if you want for a week or two, I always say track your sleep on a diary. That's the best thing. You can get one on my website. The National Sleep Foundation has one. There are sleep diaries everywhere. 
because it will give you some insight into how inconsistent your sleep patterns are, if you're drinking coffee or alcohol and those things are impacting your sleep. So if there's something obvious that you see happening, make that change, just basic sleep hygiene things. If that doesn't help after a week or two, then you talk to your doctor. We always think of it like a tiered approach. So I love to start with CBT for insomnia for the majority of patients. It's not for everyone, but the majority of people, we try to treat it without medication because that's gonna be the best long lasting thing for you. And if that's not feasible or there's no one near you or it's not working, then we move to medications or other treatments from there. Yeah, and people with MS are typically on lots of different medications anyway. Mm -hmm. So not adding another one is a nice thing to not have to worry about. Exactly, 100%. Awesome. So do you have a favorite tip or a tip that you feel like most people don't know, whether it's about sleep hygiene or the CBTI, that you feel like if they knew what it was, so many people could sleep a little bit better or feel a little bit better? And if so, what would that be? It sounds so simple, but it's really consistency. So it's the spend a little less time in bed to sleep more, right? But also keep the same wake time seven days a week. And most people don't want to do this. They shift it on the weekends. If they don't have to get up, they'll sleep a little later. If you go to bed a little later or around the same time every night, but you get up at the exact same time every morning and you get a little bit of sunlight, the not compensating for a bad night of sleep is what actually helps people in the long run. But no one really wants to do that. They just wanna lay in bed a little longer, try and catch your sleep. But really, if you're firm about that wake time, it can really help in the long run. Yeah, awesome, that's really good to know. So my first thought goes to, one thing that I tell myself every morning, regardless of if it's true or not, is I'll tell myself, okay, I'm really tired, but I'm gonna wake up and I can nap later if I want to. And sometimes I do have time to nap. Other times I don't, but I still tell myself that. Are naps good? I've heard 15 to 20 minutes is good, but over that is bad. Any thoughts on naps? So naps, they're great for some people. They're not great for others. So they're wonderful for productivity, mood enhancement, just releasing a little bit of that sleepiness that you're feeling, alleviating a little bit of it. But they're great only if you don't have routine trouble sleeping at night. So if you're not having any trouble sleeping at night, by all means, take a nap if you want to and you can. So the way to do it is we usually say about 20-ish minutes. That's the ideal because if you do longer than that, you get into deeper stages of sleep and you actually wake up feeling more groggy. So it's usually 20 minutes or then about 90 minutes. So you go through a whole sleep cycle and then you wake up, but most people aren't finding 90 minutes to nap during the day. So 20 minutes and then try to do it before, we always say about 2 p.m., but if you go to bed a lot later, then like 10, 11 at night, you can take a later nap. And then really try to do it if you can in a quiet, dark, cool, comfortable space. If you're at home, working from home or whatever, just go into your bed and try and take a nap then. And I usually tell people like, start the nap, set a timer for 30 minutes so that then you give yourself 10 minutes to fall asleep. And then when the 30 minutes are done, you've had your 20 minute nap and you're done. And that's it. Awesome. But don't do it routinely if you have trouble sleeping at night because it's a recipe for disaster. That's true. Yeah. I personally don't fortunately have difficulty sleeping at night. So maybe I can try napping more. (laughs) Awesome. Well, this has been super insightful. I really appreciate getting your thoughts because sleep is something that I get asked questions about often since I do have a lot of clients with sleep issues. So it's helpful to hear that there's a way to treat it without medication Mm -hmm. and that there's some of these simple things that you can do and ways that if you don't have access to someone, you can still get some guidance. I'm curious, what are the license rules for you guys? So with physical therapy, you can only treat people in the same state that you are in. 
Is it the same for you guys or is it different? I mean, there's different people who do CBTI. So there's mostly they're psychologists, some social workers, but there's also MDs. It's a, a range of people with degrees, but for psychologists, it also depends on the state. So in New York, we had, I'm in New York, we can only practice in the state or if someone's from like right outside the border, they come to my office, that's fine. However, there's this new thing called SIPACT. So there's a bunch of states since the pandemic, but New York is not one of them, that have all gotten together. So if you're in one of the SIPACT states, you could actually see someone from a different state and that's totally fine. So I encourage people to look up the SIPACT so you can see if someone's allowed to practice in your state. Oh, that's good to know. The PT world has the same thing. It's called the PT Compact. And New York is not one of those states. New York is just so tricky. It's really tricky. And it's just, I find that it's creating disservice for a lot of people when everything's over Zoom and there aren't that many wonderful providers out there. Let's give people access to really good care. Yeah, absolutely. So this has been really helpful. Can you share with our listeners where they can find you? I know you have a website, you're on social media. Where can they find you, learn about you, and maybe work with you? My website is dr, like doctor, drshelbyharris.com. You can find more about me, about my book there if you want. And then the other thing I do is I'm pretty active on Instagram. So it's just sleepdocshelby. So you can always join that and then also message me through there or my website. Awesome. And you mentioned some of those apps and books early. I'll put the link to your book and those apps in the show notes. So if anyone is driving or just listening right now, you can check that a little bit later to find Shelby. Thank you again for being here with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's show. I am so grateful to have you as a listener. If you'd like extra resources, such as a video of one of my seated exercise classes, my favorite core exercises, and the opportunity to ask me your questions, head to missinglink.com forward slash insider. That link will be shared in the show notes along with links to my social media handles. If you loved this episode and think a friend or family member with MS would benefit from listening, please go ahead and text or email this podcast to them right now. Sharing this podcast will help me educate and empower as many MS warriors as possible. Thanks again for joining and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Missing Link Podcast.